The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at StandingStoneSupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. I definitely think that if you're a type of guy that likes to have a little control over the situation, getting a dog trained all the way through the fall just makes a hunt so much more enjoyable. If you're currently in the market for a kennel, then be sure to check out Gunner Kennels. Don't just get a plastic, untrustworthy, and undependable box from the pet store. Sure, your wallet may thank you at the moment, but not after the trip to the vet because you entrusted your best friend's safety to the cheapest and unproven option out there. You wouldn't travel in a death trap vehicle, so why have your dog do it? He's your child. He's your family. He's your hunting partner that's always there for you, and he deserves the best. What makes Gunner Kennels the best? It's the only kennel in the market that's five-star crash rated from the Center for Pet Safety. Each year, over 100,000 dogs are killed falling from pickup trucks, and even more are injured. The intermediate-sized kennel was tested up against 4,000 pounds of force, and they couldn't go any higher because it broke the vice machine. The double-wall roto-molded construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather. It has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last, and Gunner stands behind that. And most importantly, it's American-made. Because America. That's why. They have all the accessories that you can imagine, including fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around, So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holiday and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out our podcast. We're going to start this week at GDIY with a quote. Our buddy Charles Geyer of Lost Highway Kennels threw at us on Facebook the other day. As to methods, there may be a million and then some, but principles are few. The man who grasps principles can successfully select his own methods. 
The man who tries methods ignoring principles is sure to have trouble. Leads right into our steadiness discussion. Yep. It's a much fancier way of my way of saying it. What I tell everybody is don't worry about the how worry about the why. That's right. The churched it up. Yes. Churched it up quite a bit, but Charles appreciate that. That's a, it's a hell of a quote. And, uh, Leads right into what we're going on this week, and uh, next week we're covering steadiness. This week we're going to be doing the intro as to um, defining what steadiness is and really going over just pros and cons and why, why you know, why, why we think it's important. So um, we hit on a little bit of, of the methods that are used for the retriever and, retrieving and flushing uh, breeds, but... Honestly, that's not really our, that's not in our wheelhouse, so we don't go too in-depth in that, but um, that's what we were able to get through this week without making it too long-winded, and uh, we're saving the, the best stuff for, for next week, at least for the, <laughs> the what we feel confident in talking about, which is yeah. the pointing dog steadiness. Yeah, well, we know when it comes to steadiness, especially in the pointing world, there's a ton of different proven, infamous, if you want to call it that, methods that a lot of people swear and live by, uh, you know, everything from the Dave Walker method, the wing and shot method from Robert Whaley, Gibbons West method, the stop to flush by Jim Marty. It, there's, there's a ton of methods out there. Uh, we just, in our short time in this world, you know, handful of years, we just, we stay reading and watching all this stuff. We just haven't made it our way to those methods, so we don't go into de- depth on those. We don't really explain them. We just kind of give a brief, generalized overview of steadiness and how we did it and a couple methods that we've had firsthand experience with on the pointing side. And so uh, we know that there's other methods out there, and uh, you know, as we come across them and become more experienced with them, you know, maybe cover those individually later on down the road. Yeah, this is just going to be an overview of the things that we're familiar with that we've actually done. And there's, I mean, heck, there's, there may be a name out there for it. I don't know, yeah. but we don't know. The, we call the, it the Prima method, yeah, the Norm the, Prima method. It's just a mixture of us uh, firsthand trial and error doing things and, and um, with a little bit of help from old Norm Prima, uh, you know, along the way. So it's... It's just our way that we worked through doing this because Nick and I started basically learning how to do training about the same time. Yeah. But that's more next week's episode anyway, the the how-to of what we do uh, this week again is more just the why and understanding the whole concept of steadiness and the benefits that it brings you and your hunting dog. And uh, But, yeah, so before we get to that, you want to give everybody an update on old Cash? Oh, cash money, man. Last week had a little, I didn't know what it was. He, on his rib cage, had a, uh, looked like just a fatty tumor that the old dogs sometimes get, you know. And yep. and uh, I was like, goodness gracious, what is going on here? And so called up old uh, Wit, um, the Witty vet, sent him some pictures, went in. The issue was is that the, growth whatever it was was hard and so it wasn't a lipoma um we didn't know what it was so ended up taking him in had a little uh minor surgery to get it out because i mean we 
we wanted to go ahead and get it out because it was growing pretty big fast and it turned out to be another freaking porcupine quill <laughs> Never that ending. was like it, you know for whatever reason everyone talks about all these porcupine incidents where their dogs just are fine where they can pull these quills out and have no issues this quill was like bent all up bent in half in him i don't know where it had traveled from but luckily we got it out and uh He's at the house hanging out now, so have a yeah. couple weeks off. This took you off the books for uh, this weekend. Yeah, did happen. Yeah, and probably next weekend too, because uh, I don't. It's just going to depend. He's got a little bit of some fluid buildup right there right now that we're trying to get under control, but he's just. Uh, it's a mess, man. But the benefit of having two dogs is you have a second dog. Absolutely. So you can at least go hunt scout tomorrow. Yeah, and I went and scouted a place this morning to take scout. And uh, we're going to see how busy it is in the morning with muzzleloader and everything going on. A little public land spot not too Orange far Orange Army time in Tennessee. Yeah, man, it's on us. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, Cash, hope he gets better real quick and y'all can get back out there in the in the woods and having some fun. But, uh, so, uh, yeah, Patreon. Yeah. Had a pretty good showing from Patreon last week. Uh, we really appreciate it. it it's going to go a long way to help the podcast. If you're interested in Patreon, please check it out. Every single little bit helps us. Uh, again, you know, podcast, it doesn't it doesn't bankrupt us, but there are associated costs, and it just really helps, helps out with those as well as helps us uh, branch out and start covering new stuff and maybe new content and uh, – yeah, if you want to check it out, please do. We do have a giveaway for Patre- Patreon. As soon as we get 100 users, we'll be giving away the Big Daddy, the the large Gunner Kennel to only the Patreon users. And there'll be a lot more details for that coming down the road. I think we have a little little bit of time before we hit that mark. Yeah, right now we're still doing the um, intermediate Gunner giveaway. It's on our Instagram We've had a lot of entries on that. Go to our Instagram, Gundog It Yourself, and uh, follow the steps there that are that are listed in the uh, posting. And it's easy to enter, guys. Um, just go ahead and, and tag three of your buddies and follow us and Gunner Kennels. And, hey. We're going to have the giveaway up until Thanksgiving, maybe day after Thanksgiving, uh, sometime in that ballpark. So we, you got about another, what, week, week and a half. Yep. But uh, go do it now. And also, still, with the Patreon, if you want additional chances to win that kennel, go do the Patreon. We're matching more names in the hat to every dollar pledged on Patreon. So if you do the $10 tier, you get 10 more chances to win that Gunner kennel. So please, just another reason to check that out. And, uh, yeah, besides that, just do the the good old rate, review, share. Five stars. Five stars. And uh, share. Please share with a friend, share on Facebook, share on Instagram. Uh, it, it really goes a long way to help our reach and everything, and we appreciate everything. Uh, hopefully, we're working on potentially trying to get some uh, swag for everybody. Maybe we can start doing that, uh, something along the lines. If you share, you know, we, we can pick somebody out every week and uh, give a hat or something away, but that's what the Patreon goes to. So, uh Check those out, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Gundog It Yourself. Email is gundogityourself at gmail.com if you have any corrections, gripes, concerns, 
suggestions, requests. We're getting a lot of requests. Uh, we hear you. We're putting them down. We're trying to work on it. We know uh, that a lot of people want some flushing dog experience. We're working on that. We're working on some retriever stuff coming down the road. Uh, we have a squirrel dog episode coming at, at you real soon. So, uh, yeah, if you send us a request, we do take it down, and uh, we work towards it. So if you have anything, let us know. And uh, I don't think with anything else to cover – Hope Let's you enjoy this podcast on steadiness and uh second episode will be be released next week. All right. Thank y'all for listening. Appreciate it. What every gun dog owner needs besides the dog is reliable gear. The folks at Duck Camp specialize in making apparel and gear for all types of outdoorsmen. The company isn't just for duck hunters and waterfowlers. They are a company for wing shooters and all outdoorsmen. When the hunting season is over, they put down their shotguns and boots and they pick up their fly rods and hit the water. Duck Camp clothing flat out fits better. They're made with better fabrics and they are just all around better hunting shirts. Duck Camp has a commitment to upland hunters and providing specific products designed for those who love to hunt behind dogs. They have everything from solid color shirts to blaze orange accent shirts, quail straps, and breathable lightweight rain jacket. Their shirts are designed with a more athletic cut that allow enough room through the shoulders and upper body so that you can move and shoot comfortably in the field. They also just launched a brand new line of brush pants that are a can't miss, unlike your shooting. We at GDIY can speak firsthand to the level of quality this company produces. We have been using their Upland shirts for a few months now and can't even imagine wearing anything else. The lightweight shirt keeps you cool but protected from the cover, while the heavyweight shirts will keep you warm and comfortable even in the coldest days of field. Duck Camp's brand is rooted in the camaraderie that you find at any hunting camp. It is as much about the feeling as it is about the place. Please go to gundogyourself.com and use the Duck Camp link to see their website. They are a direct-to-consumer company with no middleman involved. Stop in and purchase some amazing hunting gear and tell them GDIY sent you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Nick back here with you. Austin's holding steady on the edge of his seat. He's so excited. He wants to talk about steadiness. Steadiness. The foundation for a safe and fun hunt (laughs) yeah (laughs) so let's just jump right on into this uh i guess the number one thing that should be uh talked about here is defining what is steadiness because i think there's there's a misnomer here a lot of people especially in the pointing dog world they seem to uh, mix up staunchness with steadiness and it's not the same thing. Okay. So staunchness is intensity on point. That's your staunch. So they go on point and they're holding that actual point. Steady is remaining on point to a certain point. <laughs> if, to, that's, if that's redundant. However long you desire yeah, that so, dog to stay there. So with pointing, you're going on point, you're staying on point through whichever level you want. And the different levels are steady to flush steady to shot steady to fall maybe steady to wing but we'll go over that here in a little bit (laughs) we'll touch on that later and then uh flushing dogs it's kind of the same thing as the uh pointing world except it's no point they're they're flushing the bird and then they're staying in one spot until the level that the handler wants it to so whether it's you know they want the dog to go on sit or stay or or whatever and 
again, steady to shot or steady to release. And then retrieving, it's just remaining at stay or at the place until released. So there's really not a whole bunch of different levels there. I don't really know anybody in the retrieving world that does steady to shot. I guess you could, but I don't know anybody or, or really have heard anybody doing that. Uh, so retrieving is really just staying put until uh, they're released for the retrieve. Yeah. So as far as our world, when we're doing this with the pointing dogs, we're trying to start from the very beginning of training to get this dog to be steady through the release or fall. And, um, you know, that's kind of what we're going to be able to talk more about is just the pointing world uh, today, pointing dog world today. But we wanted to go over those other types of dogs and, and let people know what the general ideas are for those dogs as well. Yeah, we're, we're, we can really only speak firsthand to the pointing. We understand and have listened and read a bunch of stuff on the flushing and retrieving, and we've hunted alongside a bunch of people, especially in the retriever side. The flushing side, we're just going to kind of give a general overview. We're, we, we're not coming at it from firsthand experienced flushing dog handlers, uh, but we want to touch on it because it falls into – this whole realm and then uh when we have a flushing dog expert on then we can get them to expand on that even more for you guys yeah because what we've done is a lot of waterfowling and a lot of upland hunting and not a lot of upland hunting with flushing dogs right so um i guess let's jump into what we think are the the benefits of why we even want to train steadiness yeah i think that's important to touch on because Especially in the pointing dog world, you get a lot of people, if, if they're not playing a game that requires a certain level of steadiness, you get a lot of people that talk about, I don't need a dog to get steady. Uh, that infamous trainer that we talk about down here in Tennessee that, you know, he always says that everything can be solved by cutting the dog's nuts off. Uh, he's one of those guys that he's just like, oh, yeah, I know how to train my dog to do anything. Well, when you talk to him about training steadiness, he'll flat out say, nobody has given me a damn good reason ever in the history of mankind that you would ever need to train your dog past a steady to flush. Yeah. And so there are benefits. Uh, number one, I think obviously is safety. Yeah. And I, and this is, you know, the first one that all of us that train our dogs, I guess, to be steady through the fall, we throw out there immediately. And I think that there's good reason for that. The bottom line is, is that it, it creates the ability for you to have control over that situation. Yeah. You know that you have trust in your dog that it's not going to be right on that bird when you want to go shoot it. keeps the dog safe, and um, it, it can really benefit you if you're in a multi-dog hunting scenario, and especially if you have a large party and you've got all kinds of people. Inexperienced shooters, yeah. young shooters maybe. Yep, and, and it's came in handy when we've done youth hunts, you know, for Quell Forever and um, other organizations down here where we can trust in knowing that our dogs are going to be safe when they find that bird and that bird flushes. Yeah, I mean, the the key point in this is it's safe for the dogs, but also – I think it's just more enjoyable, like you said, about the youth hunt, for example. We we went out for uh, the uh, A Soldier's Child Foundation last year with Quell Forever, and so we had a bunch of young kids that have never been around dogs, and, I mean, most of them hadn't even been around shotguns. And just because our dogs were reliably steady, we were able to take them out and 
enjoy the day. We weren't having to worry about our dog safety. We weren't having to worry. We could pay attention to the kids' uh, safety with the guns, making sure they're pointing in a safe direction and, and all that jazz. And uh, it just lends itself directly towards enjoyment of the hunt. And part of that is uh, even just not busting or causing more birds to flare or busting more birds like if they break on a bird flushing early and mm-hmm. kicking up i mean you've been in a number of situations to where there's a big covey and just because scout pointed one bird because he was steady you actually got more shot opportunities on the rest of that covey than the that first original bird yeah absolutely one 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 example comes to mind where we were in kansas last year and i watched him go on point and as I was approaching, he was probably 60 yards away when he went on point. As I was approaching, half of the covey got up and flew off. And he stayed there and watched those birds fly. And I was still able to go in and flush and have a productive, you know, flush. We ended up getting one bird out of the remaining covey there. So, I mean, we got more shot opportunities. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he found the birds, which is what a lot of guys want that, you know, that some people, that's just their preference. That's what they want is just, hey, I just want the dog's to point and then when the bird gets up right on it but in that scenario you wouldn't have gotten a shot at any of the birds because you'd have taken out the rest of the covey he would have taken out the rest of the covey and you weren't there you know to to be able to get a shot and so that that's another consideration and then also just overall a better shot picture yeah so the dog goes on point you don't have to worry about being distracted you don't have to worry about the safety of the dog, like we already mentioned, you don't have to worry about the dog moving. You literally just flush the bird and you're only concentrating on that bird. Yeah. I think that's a, the big thing on all this is that it all goes back to me on being able to have that safe and just fun experience when you're out there, not having to worry about things that could devastate a hunt, you know, and I probably wouldn't be able to come home if something happened to my dog either. So, (laughs) You know, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, another benefit is you shoot the bird. You have multiple dogs in the field. If you're hunting with multiple steady-to-fall or steady-to-release dogs, you can potentially decide which dog you want to send on that retrieve. So if one's better in a certain situation, certain habitat, it's closer, whatever, you can decide that dog goes for the retrieve while the other one doesn't. Yeah. I can definitely, I've been in a scenario where that's, uh, where I would have liked to have utilized that. I can tell you, Scout, he doesn't hunt dead amazing when there are multiple downed birds. You know, if he, if we shoot three birds and, um, I'll just say on a one cubby rise, three birds go down, or even we'll just say two, he'll see that one that he's focused on and he'll go get it. And then when he comes back, Look, there's no BS. I'll have to walk over to where I saw that bird was for him to hunt and actually find that second bird because yeah. it's just for him, you know, it, it's he is good at marking one and then hunting dead on the second one. He usually overshoots it. So if we have another dog that's there that could be able to, if I could just hold Scout back and get somebody, get another dog out that can hunt dead a little closer yeah that would be beneficial and i mean even if it's not you don't want to go through all that thought process figuring out which dog's gonna be better on this retrieve just for the sake of we've all been in the field where multiple dogs going after the same bird at the same time Uh 
sometimes it's fine like depending on if they're depending on the dog in the situation but we've all seen it to where a bird gets torn up or fighting over a bird yeah dogs fight over the bird you know it it happens so it's just like it just makes it a lot easier and more controlled and a more enjoyable uh situation if the dog's steady and you can just send one dog at a time and you don't you're not getting any of that you're just kind of skipping over that possibility yeah I definitely think that if you're a type of guy that likes to have a little control over the situation, getting a dog trained all the way through the fall just makes a hunt so much more enjoyable. So that, you know, that's what we always do. We recommend that from the beginning and we'll get into our processes on how, how we do that um, here in a little bit. Do do you have any negatives or any type of Well, we still have a couple positives too. Uh, Hit them up. Like you, we always, um, people talk about if their dog range is too far, they get a big running dog. Mm-hmm. Maybe they got the dog, uh, out of the wrong line before, you know, they didn't do the research or, you know, maybe it's just an oddball and the dog really ranges too far and they want it to work closer or whatever. Getting a dog to work closer, you're going against the grain. You're going against that dog's natural ability. You can do some stuff. There are things that you can do, but a lot of people will tell you, that honestly the easiest thing to do is just really, really push steadiness in that dog. And if the dog is reliable on point and steady, it doesn't matter if the dog is three, 400 yards away in an open prairie or 100 yards. If it's steady, you can get there, you know, assuming that the bird just doesn't wild flush or whatever. But if you can count on that dog to not cause the bird to flush, it gives you time to get there. So it's it's a lot easier to train steadiness, I think, than it is to try and rein a dog in because then you're really fighting just genetics and that dog's makeup. And if you have a dog that just likes range, it's, it, it's a lot more enjoyable to train and drive home steadiness than it is to rein them in. And so what you're talking about there, that's you're talking about when the dog establishes point, it's not going to creep at all or anything like that. Yeah. We don't want the dog to bust the bird or cause the bird to flush. I mean, obviously some birds hold better than other on point. So it's just, you know, some birds are just real flighty and you know, yeah, a longer ranging dog can, can keep you from having shots on birds. But if you're hunting a bird species or just an individual bird, whatever that will hold, you know, that that's a lot easier to train than it is to rein it in. Yeah. And then, uh, I think, uh, one more benefit is for the retriever guys out there, this kind of goes back to safety, but also enjoyment because who wants to fall into some water in the middle of the uh, duck season? You're hunting in a boat or kayak, you know, a dog being steady, it's not going to rock the boat. Yeah, I that would, man, that would suck to be dumped out <laughs> in the middle of the lake doing that. But I can tell you, um, first hand on that if you get a dog that's even steady you're talking about just being in a blind scenario you you mentioned flaring birds and everything earlier if you can get a dog that will hang tight yeah it's just like what i was talking about when scout didn't blow through the rest of that covey if say you get a shot at one or two birds that come by in a duck hunt scenario and you are capable and your dog is going to listen to you to say, hey, don't go, don't break. Then got another group, you got another group that's coming in that you can get, you know, that you can get a volley on and knock a few down. Yeah. So 
It just gives you more opportunities. It does. It opens it up. Uh, but the drawbacks, you know, that few people have some, some concerns of which they don't go through the effort or worry of training steadiness. And I think, uh, the number one thing that you hear of the most is you can potentially lose birds or crippled birds if the dog is not right on the tail feathers. Like a lot of people, they want when that bird is up in the air, they want that dog nipping at its tail feathers because as soon as you shoot it, they want yeah. that dog on it because they don't want to lose that bird. And a lot of the grouse hunters and pheasant hunt- pheasant hunters talk about that. You know, it's yeah. one of those deals where – they believe on the recovery aspect that that gives you the best chance of actually recovering that game. Yeah. But I mean, I get, I totally get, but on the same side, I understand it. I'll say this on the, from the grouse hunting perspective, I get that just based on the terrain and the typical type of, um, (laughs) habitat that you're hunting in. But like pheasant hunting, for example, when you're in an open field, and a lot of the time when you train these dogs to go steady through fall, they are intently watching that bird fly and marking where it goes down. Yeah. And so I could argue that when you have an open terrain like that, that it will allow the dog an opportunity to mark that bird and get calm, kind of, okay, this is where it went down, and basically focus in on one area as opposed to if it's chasing it, it may actually, I mean, I've seen dogs and my puppy, when I was starting to shoot birds over him, you know, even when he's chasing the birds and we're shooting them, he's not getting a good mark on the birds that he's chasing because he's so worried about looking up in the air where it is. And if he loses it in that split cha- in that split second when it gets shot, you know, I mean, it goes down without him being able to see where it went. Well, my, my thing on this is I understand what they're saying, and, you know, it sucks to lose a bird. Anybody that's been doing this for, for a little while, it happens. You lose some birds. I mean, I, I lost one particular grouse up in Wisconsin. I don't even think it hit the ground. I think it got hung up in that tree. But my thing is if a bird is hitting the ground, even if it's crippled, at least, I mean, even in NAVDA, from an early age, the natural ability test, we train these dogs to track. Yeah. I mean, if you want to call it training, these dogs track. And at an early age, they're tracking live birds, roosters on foot. And so it's like if you have a good dog with natural tracking ability or just it's just good at it, whether you've worked on it and just repetition, whatever, I think that kind of mitigates the point that if it's a crippled bird, it'll run on you. Well, you know, the dog will find it, just give it time, and, and it'll work its way over to it. You may lose some, yes, yeah. but I think I, – I don't know if it's a good enough point, in my opinion, in my preference, to, to sit, go over the benefits of it. Yeah, and I think it all goes back to what you want out of that hunt and out of the dog because I would rather trade safety and an enjoyable controlled hunt over – and over just losing one bird every once in a while because it ran 300 yards after it hit the ground, you know, which is, I believe, uh, you know, it seems to be a more rare occasion. So, you know, it it happens. um, You're going to lose some birds, but at the end of the day, my emphasis is on the safety 
and enjoyment of that hunt. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the benefits outweigh, especially this uh, drawback. The only other drawback I've I've heard from honest people and just from my viewpoint is people just don't want to train for it. They don't want to take the time and energy and effort and money to train for it. Oh, it can suck if you've got a dog that's hard-headed on it. Oh, I mean, it takes time. And, and we're going to touch on this a heck of a lot more here here soon. It does take time, and it does take money, and it does take consistency and dedication to it. So a lot of people, and I mean, granted to, to these type of people, most of them are pr- completely honest. It's like, I just, I just don't want to go through it. And yep. it's like, hey, you just want a dog that hunts. Like, I, I can at least understand that more so than the people saying that they don't want to lose a bird because I feel like, you know, these caliber of dogs, especially the dogs that are being bred nowadays, I think you have confidence that they can track yeah, that bird down. It's just, I don't, I don't really see you losing that many more birds by just letting your dog bust. It's like, let's just be realistic. You just don't want to train for steadiness, which is okay. It's your dog. It's your preference. I mean, so that that's really the only other drawback that I could even remember somebody saying. So, And, you know, going back to the training aspect of it, it's not only that maybe those people don't want to go through the hassle of doing the, the, the training to get there, but if you're like me, when I first got Scout, I didn't know how the hell to train steadiness. Yeah. And it's, and that's kind of why we're doing this podcast is yeah. to inform people of different methods to get it done. Yeah. So it's maybe you've got guys that are out there that are saying, okay, I'd be willing to put in the time, but I don't know where to start. Yeah. So. Well, that's where we're at. And we're just, we benefited from, uh, from NAVDA and, and getting taught or instructed by more experienced and a lot handlers. of trial and error uh, yeah and a lot of, yeah a lot, <laughs> and of, a lot of expensive uh pin raised birds so I, I think that does it kind of for the for the positives and drawbacks i think that was like six or seven positives to two negatives that, that we could name off the top of our heads uh so i mean again we're we're both on the same page i think in the long run to to have a more enjoyable and reliable dog i think training steadiness to a higher level is uh is just an overall positive than a than a negative but again guys just like we've said on a lot of other topics on this you can absolutely hunt a dog all day long without there being steadiness past the flush absolutely it's your decision decision it's it's up to you so let's get into when we actually start training steadiness and i'm a firm believer that Adam says it perfectly. He plants seeds in his dog the second that it comes into the door. Mm-hmm. As a young pup, he's planting the seeds. So really, when you bring that dog home, you're immediately training steadiness without actually training steadiness. You're planting those seeds, and there's a bunch of stuff you can do around the house as the puppy's coming up and just your daily routine that will directly lend itself into steadiness in the field. Yeah, it's almost at the puppy stage, just kind of falling into that impulse control type of uh, training. It's teaching them patience. Yeah, you want the dog to be able to understand when they have to be calm, for how long they have to be calm, for them to be able to get a reward. Yeah, you know, and uh, some of the things that we do around the house is even as puppies, 
and just talking about going outdoors. You know, we, we mentioned that last podcast where Adam said, hey, I go outdoor, out the door first. Yeah. You go out the door second. Um, getting them out of the kennel. It, there's a period of time where they have to remain calm in their kennel before they come out of the kennel. Yeah. Uh, do you have other examples? I'm running out right here. But Food. Yeah. Food is very easy to do this. Yes. And to touch more on what you were talking about, steadiness is really 100% obedience. And oh, yeah. So, so it's like that's the easiest way to explain steadiness. The more obedience you do – with these dogs and you consistently enforce those expectations on any obedience, it's going to make your dog easier to train on anything, not just steadiness. But yeah, so your point, so like obviously going through doors and kennels and food, you get your dog to stay, sit, whoa, at the food, food bowl until you want it to go. Obviously that directly lends itself to steadiness. And I use the same exact release for all of those, I actually, to be perfectly honest, I don't do steadiness through doors. Like every door I come across, I don't do that. I do it come in like through my deck, mm-hmm. uh, out of the kennel. I do it all the time. I do it out of the truck. I do it all of that, but I actually don't do it in the door, you know, through the doors throughout the house, the bedroom, the entry. I probably should do it on the entry door or exit, uh, yeah. but I just don't, to be perfectly honest. But every single one of those things, you're making the dog stay until it's perfectly calm and it knows it's not getting what it wants to do until you tell it, okay, good to go. Yeah. And, you know, I I, I do a lot of things that correlate to what we're talking about. This, This is, in my mind, goes back to impulse control and just overall obedience in general, right? So with coming out of the kennel. Okay, Cash, my younger dog, gets excited as hell when I try to get him out of the kennel. He is barking and just trying to, you know, get out at first. And barking, he doesn't bark in the kennel now, does he? He's calmed down a little bit, but he uh-huh. he barks, he barks, and so he's uh, he understands that, um, you know, he's not getting out of the kennel until he shuts up. He shuts up and he's quiet and he's he's basically I don't care if he's sitting or standing when I'm getting him out, but. Yep. And when that happens, when everything happens and we make eye contact and I say good and he maintains that for a few seconds, I'll say, okay. And I'm not, so you mentioned earlier, use the same release command on everything. Honestly, I mix mine up, you know, as far as coming out of the kennel, I tell him, okay. As far as um, coming out, like if I, I do it on the front door and the back door of my house where I let them, I have to go out first and they have to stand there until I say, okay, and tell them to come out. When we're out in the field and I'm teaching the steadiness portion, generally there's a bird that's down and I'll say fetch or whatever. But I think that there is. Well, that's in a on a retrieve, but this, your release on woe or anything like that is the same. It's, it's still okay. It is okay. Yes. So my point is, is that there's an association that I believe the dogs get that's kind of like a cross association between, okay, there are these different activities that I'm performing. I have to maintain calm, maintain calmness and basically listen and be obedient to get released to go do the next activity, which could be to go fetch or could be to go um, through the door, out of the kennel or whatever it is. Okay. So 
I think there's a cross association between all those things. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, it's just obedience. So the more obedience that you can build up in these dogs and patience, I've gotten to where my dogs, I can open the kennel doors and I can walk completely away out of sight. And they know that they're not supposed to come out of the kennel until they get their names. I actually transitioned from my release command to their yeah. names because I'm trying to build up to being able to send them on individual retrieves by their names. Right. And so what we were talking about earlier, being able to pick and choose which dog you want to send on a retrieve. If they're both in the field, I want to be able to say Rachel fetch. Which is what Lucy a lot of people fetch. do in the retriever world. Right. And so I actually transitioned. I used to, I just used to say go on because that was my release command for everything, kennel, food, whatever I was using go on. And so now I actually transitioned to their individual names. And so one at a time, one's coming out and it actually makes a hell of a lot more easier job for tailgate manners when you can open up the kennel and you don't have a dog just taking off your face coming blaring through the kennel but uh yeah so i mean i think we beat that horse to death it's just start consistent routine stuff around the house to build up that patience in that dog and and it will clearly understand the expectations as adam says you plant that seed plant that seed let then, it grow and then you're gonna water it later you're gonna water it when you're doing the training and then it'll sprout at some point <laughs> turn into that nice mature whatever you've planted well it's called are you a an arborist oak. now yeah i'm an arborist <laughs> in my my third job that i've got all right uh well and then again training steadiness it's a it's a lot easier to use that dog's retrieve drive to train steadiness. Some dogs don't have retrieve drive, not naturally. You can do stuff as a young pup and around the house to help build that retrieve drive. And it's only going to make that, it gives you a tool in the toolbox that you're going to use as the primary molding factor in that dog to use against him in steadiness. So his reward at the end of, of the entire sequence is that bird in its mouth. He wants that retrieve. That's what he wants to go get. If that dog doesn't want to go get that bird, really, I mean, you're just training that dog to stay steady so it doesn't go run off, I guess, like it go looking for another bird. I, it, yeah. It's like you're, you're fighting the dog's natural instinct to go retrieve is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, so what you're talking about is from a young age, building the desire that's going to allow you to have an easy transition into that steadiness, right? And I will say, as an addition to that, say you do have one of these dogs that does not have an amazing retrieve drive, mm -hmm. okay? But say you got a dog that likes that quest, that quest that everybody <laughs> talks about, yeah. likes going and searching, yeah. okay? George Hickox. Yeah, so... You've got to just figure out what your dog enjoys to be able to reward that dog later on with whatever the proper reward is so that it knows, okay, like for instance, if my dog doesn't like to retrieve, then it, but it likes to search and find birds. It, he doesn't get to go search. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm getting at. You either... You give the reward because he was good through the steadiness sequence by allowing him to go search again, or if it's one of those deals yeah. where he doesn't do it correctly, you know what not to allow him to do. Right. To, you know, give to be able to communicate with him on yeah. that. Now that that's a good point. And then uh but going back to the retrieve, because that's the most common That's the common, absolutely yeah. most common so, thing. So as a puppy early on, 
just build up that retrieve drive in the dog. Okay. It's not the same thing as a prey drive, prey drive, you you know, it kind of goes hand in hand a little bit, but prey drive in my eyes is more, I want to go search. I want to go find, I want to go kill whatever, like that's prey drive in my eyes. Retrieve drive is I actually want to go get that in my mouth and bring it back to you, whatever. So again, we've talked about in the past, just in the hallway, the sock in the hallway, you know, shut the doors, do that. Uh, what I call fun retrieves. But while you're doing this, you're, you're not just playing with the dog, okay? Everything is intentional. Just like Adam, again, planting the seeds. You're, you're not force-fetching the dog, but you are establishing a pattern. And even if it's a sock down a hallway, you know, a, a tennis ball, whatever gets that dog hyped up and wants to go retrieve, use that. And just start, obviously, with them wanting to go get it and bring it back to you. But then if you have that retrieve drive, just start making that dog stay by your side, even in the hallway. Like, you know, just hold it by the collar and then wait. And then whatever your release command is, fetch, back, name, whatever. So you're talking like before you've established the woe command with this oh, dog. Oh, yeah. No, it's just, it's just getting that dog to realize that that dog gets to go retrieve when you say it gets to go retreat. When it's patient. And, and it goes back to intentional. Everything you're doing with a young dog is intentional. You're training and doing everything with this dog with the end goal in mind. And that's what we've talked about before, where at the beginning of this whole puppy uh, endeavor that you're going on, you got to establish your goals early so that you know exactly what the process is yep. that you're going to be doing the whole time. And, I mean, if you didn't do all this, say you have a 9- or 10-month-old dog and you're wanting to work steadiness now, and you didn't do all this, it's it's not like you got to go trade in your dog. Like, you know, the, I'm just saying. Sorry, we're, folks. Yeah. No, we're, we're just giving these examples for those that are about to get a dog or just has a puppy at the house or just the next one eventually. This makes things a lot easier when you get to the field. So it's not a requirement. It just makes your life easier. And another thing with the, just building that retrieve drive and, and that patience, I guess, before you um, allow the dog to go retrieve, as Nick was saying, this is intentional stuff. So you have to keep in mind, if you're doing this with a real young puppy, you may not be doing very many retrieves at all. You know, you're just trying to keep it fun and you don't yes. want that dog to lose any interest whatsoever. And so when Nick's telling you guys, okay, build the patience up by holding the dog and then you're allowing the dog to go get that object on a command or whenever you let the dog free it's i wanted to bring that up that it is not like you've done 20 retrieves with your 10 week old puppy and that's when you do that (laughs) it's like you've done a couple retrieves you ended on a good note maybe you come back later on the day do three retrieves and on the last one allow him to do that i'm talking three handful whatever and again it's we're not force fetching we're not we're not scolding the dog. We're not expecting the dog uh, do a clean retrieve. And yeah, you just want that dog to be fired up to go to go get that yeah. bumper. And then one of those times, you get to hold it back for the patience, and yeah. then allow the dog to go get it. Yeah. So that's the fun retrieves. And then eventually, you know, you're leaving the hallway. You're going out in the yard. You're doing it in the yard. Bumpers, whatever. You know, tennis balls, whatever you're using frisbees like that whatever you're deciding to use uh 
once you kind of have that down and the dog's figuring out the game and it's like, oh, okay, like you're, you're slowly building up that, that cooperation in the dog and the obedience that it knows that I don't go get that until he says to, uh, hopefully by now you're, if you're a pointing dog, you're, you're working on woe, uh, or hope maybe even be done with woe. Uh, you can start doing stop to flush training and, yeah. and that, that really kind of just injects some steroids into steadiness here because you're, you're not teaching the dog on point. You're not teaching the dog, you know, a flushing dog when they're finding the birds, you're just letting the dog run around the yard, the field, wherever and a bird crosses its path and they're expected to stop whether it's a flushing dog you know sit stay pointing dog whoa whatever it's you can easily do this around the yard homing pigeons obviously make it easier and more affordable if you're wanting to use live birds but honestly i haven't done much uh stop to flush training with live birds i've done very little with Rachel, I don't think I did any of it with Lucy, but I used just a docking dummy, just a quail or grouse docking dummy, and they'll just be running, and I'll throw it over them, you know, and as soon as they get a uh, clear sight picture of it, I'll yell, whoa. And then eventually it gets to where you don't even have to yell, whoa. They just see a bird or a dummy flying across. They freeze, and and then they're waiting on the release command. So now we've transitioned over into like the woe obedience command and then creating the the duration, the time period between that command and the release. Yeah. So it, it's... It, it kind of steps it up to the, the patience and the obedience on birds. Yeah. So one step that I think we need to address though is that the first thing is, is you're just through doing routine things around the house, like we talked about, you're creating that patience and little impulse control and just the foundational obedience type things. Then you're going to move into that formal woe training that we talked about several episodes ago. And once that's established, that's when you can jump into doing that stop to flush stuff. And once, once your dog, if you planted those seeds at the beginning, and then you've done a solid woe training and, and, and that dog understands that command. Once those two things are in place, that gives you an incredible foundation to build off of to get a dog to go all the way steady to fall. Right. And if, if you do that, what ends up happening is, is there's enough scenarios that you're going to run across where that dog can be woed into basically any scenario. He can be woed to stop and then release on whatever your command is and he knows what his job is you know to go get the whatever it is or he can just be released and go search again and that's where i was talking about earlier maybe if the dog doesn't have a great retrieve drive that i mean maybe the the reward is to go let him search yeah so absolutely well um retriever and flusher steadiness again we've already touched on this but we're going to say it again so that We don't get anybody saying, y'all don't know what the heck y'all are talking about. We're giving a general overview over retriever and flusher steadiness because that's not what we're experienced in, but we have been around, especially the retriever guys that do it. And then we've read a lot, listened a lot, and we've had our dogs in the blah, blah, blah. uh, We've had our dogs in the blind doing some retriever type work. Yeah. So, so with retriever and flusher steadiness, 
the easiest way that I know of and I, that I've seen the most common uh, stay and or place training. Place boards. Place boards directly. I mean, it just. And you've that's done a, some place work with. I've done some Rachel. place work with Rachel, and we'll get to that uh, here in a minute too. But it's all about again the baby steps and building blocks for p- place boards. Okay, so when we're talking about place boards, if you haven't seen anybody use them before, we're talking like you know something. Take a two by four on its side, three and a half inches, and you know do two by three feet, like, you know, and piece of plywood over it. That's, that's all that's needed. You know, three inches up off the ground, the dog knows exactly where it's at. And the easiest way that I've found to do place training is I did it from heel, just like, kind of like what I did with Woe, but you're just healing the dog. And as it's stepping up on the place, you just say place and then build it up from there. Every time you do that, you're just waiting. And then you're giving the release command again, to come off of the place board and you just extend the time that it's expected to wait on the place board before you release them. You extend the range, get them used to, you know, you walking away, walking around. It's pretty much almost the same exact thing as whoa. You're just using place. And so obviously if you have a flush or a retriever, you're not using whoa. You're just doing the same exact method that I talked about a few episodes ago on the whoa episode. You're just replacing whoa with place or stay, whatever your command is. And it's up to you if you want your dog to sit on the place board. I, right. I generally, when I teach place, I teach them to sit on the place. So, and to add on to that, I mean, this is the steadiness episode. So, you you do the place introduction, you get the dog steady, or excuse me, you get the dog to place at a distance, and then, I'm assuming, I haven't done this, guys, full disclosure, but I'm assuming then you do some distractions and different things like that while the dog's on yeah. place so that it will establish the steadiness. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing it at heel for the introduction level, but then at heel, I have the dog on a short check cord or slip lead or suitcase handle, whatever you want to call it or whatever your method of preference is, And you're, you're introducing the place board. Well then again, just baby step it on up, do the long check cord, get that 25 foot check cord out and then just let it be dragging. And you'll realize after doing so many at heel, the dog, the dogs aren't dumb. They figure it out fairly quickly. They'll start to where, you know, you're walking at heel and give the place command when you're 10 feet out and 15 feet out and 20 feet Obviously, you don't do it if the dog's not getting it at the small, smaller distance. You're building up. But you eventually get to where you can do it without even having to heal the dog. And they're just, you, you have them by your side, and you're standing off, and you don't even have to walk. You can just point, say place, and the dog will run at the place. And a lot of retriever guys actually use this to teach directional marks and you know, hand signals and all that, they'll have three or four different place boards set up mm-hmm. and you can send them left, right, back, whatever. Uh, yeah, they're, they're teaching overs. So the place boards are really big in the flusher and retriever game because they don't have, they don't use woe like pointers do. Pointer guys, we can just use woe. They, they need something else. And so you're teaching that place as, as the building block of steadiness instead of woe. You know, we can walk in the backyard and give our dogs woe and then extend our range, extend our time and distance, and then release them. The retriever guys, they need the same thing, so they just do placeboard 
or probably a stay command too. But I mean, the whole foundation of it is, is you're establishing some obedience command to get that dog to stay there so that you can have the opportunity to teach it steadiness. Yeah. So is there anything you want to add on how to, how you taught place or anything like that? Cause I think the next step is on is teaching the steadiness portion which adding distractions yeah which is adding distractions and kind of those baby steps into a real life hunting scenario yeah it's it's kind of the same thing as what we talked about earlier the stop to flush training you want to start adding in different expectations from the dog you want uh, gunfire you want different dummies you want live birds you want multiple birds uh anything you're slowly building up so you can start when the dog's at place you can start by just throwing a bumper and the dog doesn't get to go get it until you release it and then you can start adding multiple bumpers and then you're you're really trying to play a game of what level does it take to get this dog to want to leave that place board and you're reinforcing it every time that you're wanting to get that dog right up to the edge of it's wanting to you need a correction to keep taking strides in this so you have to keep pushing the limits but you don't want you don't you're not setting the dog up for failure if that makes sense you're doing it if in, you in do enough repetitions ways. what's going to end up happening is the dog inevitably is going to do something it's not supposed to do yes that's going to allow you to have the opportunity to correct it and so instead of sitting out there trying to do a hundred repetitions for that dog to make one mistake you want to start adding in make it a little harder you want to make it harder and you want that dog that dog's going to learn from the corrections and so when you start with one bumper, then two, then start with you're standing in front of the dog and someone else is hiding behind a tree and throwing a bumper or pigeons, you know, bomb the dog with pigeons while it's on place board. You know, it's, there's a bunch of different scenarios that you can do to make it harder. You can change the, uh, elevation on place. When I was teaching Rachel on place, I started with the small place board, then I built it up then built it up even higher then i put it in the boat and the kayak and that's another good thing is this directly translates into the boat kayak blind whatever because the dog starts to learn as you're making it harder you're not going to have a place board with you out in the field so you start transitioning to different stuff okay so like rachel can now place on a tree stump she can place in a boat on a on a seat dog bed in the house whatever that goes back to training your dog at an early age you can do you know place training in the house with its bed what whatever uh when you're in the blind you don't want you don't want the dog all over the blind it's not safe it's not enjoyable you want the dog in its spot it's working it's looking you know for when you shoot birds so you give the dog a place and it knows not to leave until you release it and I'm glad you brought that up. I know we don't want to jump all over the place on this, but steadiness with a retrieving dog in a blind is huge. Yes. Because it is unsafe when you've got dogs running around in a blind where you have guns that are leaned up inside of a blind. They can knock those things over. I just wanted to mention that. That's yep. another safety deal, especially for the retrieving Well, guys. every year you see those stories about, you know, the guy gets shot by his dog in the boat because, you know, the dog is – all over the boat or, or whatever. And it accidentally, you know, knocks over the gun and it goes off and, and shoots them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it directly lends itself to, uh, to in the field and then the blind and the place training. I know we've been talking about this for, it seems like forever by now, but it's like everything else. 
baby steps, building blocks, make it harder. Always be striving for more difficulty, extend the time, even get to where you can place that dog and you can walk off five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever. And that dog knows not to move. Yeah. Because that's what they're going to be doing on a blind. They're not going to be sitting there. You're, if you're only placing your dog and then you release it after 10 seconds every time, when you get in the duck blind, that dog's going to want to be hauling ass after 10 seconds. Yeah. You, you, you have to simulate what you're going to be doing in the field as close as possible. Yeah. And so that's obviously more retriever training, but I know the Fletcher guys use use the uh, place boards as well, but then their distractions and the retrieves or the, the bumpers, the wingers, the, the uh, helper throwing from a hidden position, that's kind of what really lends itself to helping flushers on their steadiness in the field. Because, you again, they're hunting. You're not going to have a place board in the field. So it's just repetitions. Those dogs learn flying birds stop. So the place board and the uh, stop to flush training is paramount in the flusher world. Yeah, and, you know, I, I'm sure there's also, like, a whistle sit, you know, for oh, yeah. for all the, the flush. You know, what I see in the fields and on these uh, – or on the field trials that I've watched and some other things on uh, um, just looking into this a little bit is that a lot of these dogs – it's it's all obedience driven right and yeah. so it's like as soon as that bird pops up one whistle sit you know they sit down until the shot yeah. and release right well that goes back to when we were talking about the uh stop to flush training when when i yelled whoa or whatever it's the same thing retriever and flushers stop to whistle it's the same thing you're replacing whoa with that so it's just like whatever your command is to stop that's the obedience that's command. That's it. That's the obedience command, and that's what you're reinforcing. You're you're yep. not reinforcing the dog's instincts around birds. You're reinforcing the obedience command. Yeah. And I think I think that's a, a small disconnect with some people is they they feel like they're they're disciplining the dog for wanting to around birds around birds. Yeah. And and you're disciplining their drive. No, you're disciplining and reinforcing the obedience. And it just happens to be around that. Yeah, and that's how, like we've talked about way early on in the podcast and all this stuff, if you've done the right obedience training, then your dog is not going to associate that negative pressure with the game or it yes. will not reduce the drive because it understands, okay, my correction is because I screwed up and I didn't follow the obedience command, the woe command, or the, the sit command, or whatever it is, yep. and that is why I'm getting corrected. Absolutely. If you take a dog with zero obedience out in the field, and you start with the check cord, or grabbing the collar, or e-collar, or, or whatever, getting onto that dog for bussing a bird, and it's never had obedience, it's, yeah, it's probably going to start, you know, blinking like birds. Birds bad. Yeah, it's like, oh, birds are bad. I get, I get correct around birds. No. Early on, it's those building blocks, it's those seeds. You're you're starting from a very early age, all that obedience, and the dog knows. It learns how to learn. It knows, you know, you have that bond. It knows that I'm not getting corrected for hunting the bird. I'm getting corrected because he gave me a woe. He gave me a whistle. He gave me a stay. He gave me whatever, and I moved. Yep. 
And so that's what you're reinforcing. And honestly, that took a lot longer than what we were thinking. I think that's probably the best spot that we have to leave off for this week. Really? Yeah. We already hit our time here? Yeah. It it, it came quick. We, we got to rambling this episode. But uh, we have a ton more to talk about on this because there's so much nuance and a lot of what ifs and, and different methods and thoughts to the steadiness. It takes a long time to cover this correctly. Well, we're going to get into the stuff that we do now. Yeah. So next week we're going to get into more heavy-handed, mainly just the, the pointer field steadiness. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what we are really comfortable with and we have firsthand experience doing. Uh, this episode was really just more of an overview of why you want steadiness, why you may not want steadiness. And uh, you guys know, you just freaking listen to the episode. <laughs> so why, I don't know why we're reviewing it right now. Well, bottom line is next week we should have a little more, um, I guess, detail and confidence in what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So thanks for bearing with us on this one. And uh, next week we'll finish this up on uh, steadiness and hopefully give everybody a a good foundation for this stuff. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, hope to see you guys back next week. All right. See you. Appreciate it. seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high grade lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup just have to replace it again in a year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.